I represented a woman who was sexually assaulted by a medical provider in the examination room. Representing a student who was sexually assaulted by a classmate when she on a band trip when she was a junior in high school. So the litigation was challenging. What happened to her happened when she was about 14 years old at a high school where we have other claims of sexual assault repeatedly occurring and adults repeatedly ignoring it or misclassifying it or minimizing it or just discouraging victims even when they said they believed that an abuse had occurred. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Few movements in modern history have managed to sweep the nation and lead to rapid systemic change as the Me Too movement. Widespread media coverage and discussion of sexual harassment, particularly in Hollywood, led to high profile long-term executives being removed from positions held, as well as many facing criminal and civil charges. Yet while the Me Too movement has encouraged women and men to come forward and name their abusers who have sexually harassed them, it has also come under attack in many high profile cases for a number of reasons. In today's Parallel Justice, we will examine a movement that has changed our culture with three of the attorneys who have been integral in pushing the movement forward. Joining me today are Micah Star Liberty, Alexandra Brodsky, and Laura Dunn. I wanna thank all three of you for joining us today and just ask you to give us a brief introduction of yourselves, starting with Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Alexandra Brodsky. I am a staff attorney at Public Justice, uh, which is a national legal advocacy organization. I practice primarily in our student civil rights project, which works on race and sex discrimination in schools, including racial and sexual harassment. And I'm also the author uh, in my non 
lawyer or personal capacity. I'm also the author of a recent book called Sexual Justice. Thank you. And Micah, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Micah Star Liberty. I have been an attorney for 20 years in private practice, always uh, working on child abuse cases and sexual assault cases, and always for the plaintiff. Thanks for having me. And last but certainly not least, Laura Dunn. Laura, would you like to introduce yourself? So my name is Laura Dunn. I'm the founding partner of the LL Dunn Law Firm. Before starting my private practice, I had founded the national nonprofit Serve Justice, which at one point was the only national nonprofit representing victims of campus sexual violence and hearings all across the country. And the reason I founded that organization is while in law school, I worked on the 2013 Violence Against Women Act reauthorization that amended the Clery Act to create a right for both victims and those accused to have attorneys in those proceedings. So that's a little bit about my background. So I think as our listeners can tell, we have the most eminently qualified women on today to talk about this. And I want to just start by making sure that we all have a very basic understanding. So Alex, can you give us a short history on the Me Too movement? How did it begin? How did it take steam? And where are we now? Oh, I think in some ways that's a, a complicated question. So there have obviously been generations of feminist organizers and lawyers who have worked to address sexual harassment, um, you know, going back uh, decades, if not longer. Uh, I think often when people refer to the Me Too movement, they're talking specifically about a surge of energy around starting around fall 2017. Um, where there were a, a series of high-profile allegations against famous men like Harvey Weinstein um, that uh, inspired a lot of people, particularly women, to come forward about their own experiences outside of the spotlight. Uh, and in doing so, used this phrase, me too, that uh, Toronto Burke had uh, originally started using as a way to name sexual abuse You know, uh, many years before. And since then, we've seen you know, sustained attention to these issues. And I think in particular, the ways that institutions function to either uh, excuse sexual abuses, to tolerate, to facilitate sexual abuses, or the ways that they can intervene to ensure victim safety and equality. Micah, how would you describe the Me Too movement? Um, well, the reason why I do the work that, that we all do is because of personal experiences and um, things that happen to people I love and care about. So I would say my first exposure to what is now referred to as the Me Too movement and the sexual assault cases that we do came in high school when uh, my best, one of my dear friends uh, was followed home from a gym and raped and murdered in her home. Her mother then came home and she was raped and murdered and the perpetrator was a serial killer in San Diego. And so that was my first awareness of violence against women um, and how many women can be impacted by one perpetrator. Uh, the next kind of broader awareness for me was being glued to the Clarence Thomas hearings and watching Anita Hill bravely testify and truth tell and all of the backlash. I mean, we can all probably remember the bumper stickers that we saw on cars saying, honk if you think Anita lied. Um, I then went to the White House as an intern and was in the same internship class with Monica Lewinsky. 
Um, so for me, it was taking my life experience and my personal experiences and kind of fitting in all of these different aspects um, and wanting to understand more about the law and wanting to figure out how I could help victims. And we've seen it ebb and flow in, in different ways. When I first started practicing um, here in California, we had a revival statute for um, clergy sexual abuse. And so, you know, there was a conversation then. And over the years, um, we've had different conversations, different people involved in the conversations. And I think that is kind of the lasting legacy of what we saw in the hashtag Me Too movement, which is the conversation now is so much broader. And we don't have to rely on our own personal experiences to understand it and to put it into context. Now, as I mentioned in my intro, this movement has come under fire a little bit, and it's also brought some legal terms, very technical legal terms, into the public space. And, and people like to throw around these legal terms, so we're going to start to unpack some of what these laws are. But I first want to just ask you all an overarching question, and anybody who wants to weigh in can certainly jump in. At NCVC, we conducted a study about public perceptions of the Me Too movement, and we found that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of due process. And a lot of people try to say that the, the abusers who are accused under Me Too do not get due process. What does that actually mean? And do you feel that that perception is true in some ways? And how can we go about reversing that perception if it's not true? I think that for me, it's really helpful to, to distinguish what due process means as a legal term and what due process means as an, you know, is referring to as an ethical commitment. So due process as a legal matter is of course the constitutional protections to which people are due when the government tries to take something away from them. So that can come into play when the government is trying to incarcerate someone or when a state is trying to fire a public employee who's tenured. Um, and so in the vast majority of circumstances where I see this coming up in the context of Me Too, when we're talking about whether you know, a celebrity was treated unfairly when they were publicly accused of sexual assault, due process as a legal matter has, is, is entirely irrelevant. But what I have to remember, so putting aside my, my lawyer brain and putting on my human brain, is that often when people, and particularly non-lawyers, refer to due process, they're referring to the underlying ethical commitment. People deserve to be treated fairly uh, when they're accused of something, whether that allegation is sexual in nature or not. And what I find is that there are people asking important good faith questions about how institutions, how the media can fairly address allegations of sexual harm in a way that makes sure that everyone gets to be heard, in a way that makes sure that uh, everyone has the chance to tell their side of the story and provide their evidence. And those are good, important questions. You know, I, this comes up all the time in school discipline um, for sexual harassment. We should be asking those questions about what fair student discipline looks like. But there are also people who are fundamentally invested in impunity for people who commit sexual harms and use this dog whistle of due process as a way to make sure that there's no accountability, where in their mind, to their minds, any kind of consequence is inherently unfair. Uh, and 
I will say as, a, as an advocate, it sometimes takes a little bit of work to figure out which interlocutors, which critics are uh, worth engaging with and working together to figure out answers to tough procedural questions and who's just a men's rights activist, who is using legal terminology uh, to advance their, their, their true end. How do you engage with those who you are able to determine do have good, are acting in good faith and want to know the difference? And then how do you dismiss those who do not? I wish I had some kind of perfect recipe here. Here's what I've generally found. I like to get into the specifics. And there are people with whom you can drill down into, let's say, what is your favorite hearing model for student disciplinary proceeding for sexual harassment or you know, for any kind of serious harm? Um, and they'll get into the weeds with you. And those are not fascinating conversations for the general public, but those are really important questions to figure out. Uh, where, and, and I think that there really are people who are, who are interested in engaging in those questions, even if they have somewhat a, a different perspective than I do. And where we often can come to some significant agreement. Where I find that it's not worth engaging is when people uh, are fundamentally skeptical of the, the harm and the prevalence of gender violence. So if their first point in their case for increasing protections for the accused is that all of these allegations are made up and grossly inflated and everyone's just being oversensitive, I have no interest in engaging because I don't believe that we're coming at this for, with this shared fundamental concern of protecting survivors, uh, which is not incompatible in, by any means with protecting the rights of the accused, but we have to both be committed to both sides to have this conversation work. Um, and I also uh, find that I cannot have productive conversations with people who engage in what I call rape exceptionalism, which basically means that they think that allegations of sexual harm have to be subjected to particularly onerous procedures. Put another way, that people accused of sexual harms need to be uniquely protected, which and, and all of that belief is ultimately rooted in rape myths, in misogyny, in beliefs that these kinds of accusations are particularly suspect. Uh, and that's just a non-starter for me. Questions so, for all three. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to add in, if I may, um, something I've found helpful in engaging with due process advocates is starting from common ground which uh, when it comes to the campus context is normally agreement between attorneys and advocates that schools are not often having fair proceedings period for anyone on either side and that schools are more focused on their own interests rather than on ensuring campus safety and equitable procedures. So I have found very helpful over the years to you know, unite over the fact that institutions have a lot of power whether that be the criminal justice system or an educational system and to work from there of, okay, if we have this common understanding, how is it fair? And just as Alexandra pointed out, how is it fair for both sides? That is not incompatible, that is absolutely possible and, and it gets towards justice. I think also, you know, these kinds of conversations are so important and can be difficult and they need to be worth having and they need to be had with the right people. We need to be having these conversations with people who have are in positions of power, policymakers, administrators, um, 
But what we see a lot is that these conversations happen in the public discourse. They're happening on social media, um, in my experience, more than anywhere else. So I really try to ask myself, is this person, is this uh, a conversation worth having in this moment with this person? Um, that, and then also, am I talking about this with the jury? Because then it's very, very important. Um, but, you know, we, we can't battle misperceptions, dog whistles, um, false labels that we see, you know, bantied about on, on Twitter every day. We have to stick to what is, what is our mission? How do we help our clients? Um, because those conversations uh, are, are not super productive in, in my experience. So Micah, how has this movement changed your strategy in the courtroom? Have you seen it in the courtroom changing defense strategies? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing um, that I noticed the most, the market difference was after um, the hashtag Me Too movement, we walked in with a little bit more credibility than we had before. And, and I wanna differentiate between child sex abuse cases and uh, adult sexual assault cases because there was a little bit more of an understanding um, and an appetite um, for analyzing the child sexual assault cases. Um, we had learned as a society a little bit more about what really happened with the Catholic Church. Um, but when we were talking about uh, sexual assault um, perpetrated on adults, there was still the he said, she said, knee-jerk response. And so we were walking into court, um, you know, well behind the start line. <laughs> And what I noticed for a moment in time was that the, that start line was, was equal. We were on level playing field. That shifted for me um, in court with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. Um, I think the, the anger felt by the folks who uh, are invested, as we were just discussing, in. Um, just excusing any and all allegations of sexual assault, um, beca that became a much bigger part of the conversation. And the conversation shifted then to um, mothers asking the question of how do I protect my son from these false allegations? Um, and so that I think we're still trying to, to unwind and unpack um, in court in front of the juries. And I'll, I'll share this, I had a conversation yesterday with a judge in LA County Superior Court. We happened to be presenting on a sexual assault panel at a conference soon. And he said to me, um, he had no background in these cases, either civilly or criminally. And um, we were just kind of chit-chatting about the subject matter. And he said, well, maybe you would call me a conservative, but I just feel like people shouldn't be held accountable for violations of the law that they don't know are violations of the law, which I found um, stunning. That's um, a current judge in Los Angeles. Correct. Yeah. So 
what we have to do is continue our educational process. We have to educate our clients with the reality of what it's really like to litigate these cases. We have to educate um, the adjusters to the extent that they'll they'll listen to us or the risk managers. I've given up on the defense lawyers. Um, and we have to educate uh, the courts and the juries. Can I just jump in there to say that to me, that seems like such a stunning example of this kind of exceptionalism because that judge knows that people are convicted of crimes all the time that they didn't know were illegal. You have all these sovereign citizens across the Pacific Northwest who are convinced that their conspiracy theory where they're not subject to the laws because they discovered some code that they can say to a judge means that every they can legally not pay taxes, but they still go to prison when they're caught. And it, it, people suddenly have very different instincts about uh, harm and accountability when the topic is sex. And that comment seems stunning and dangerous for the precedence that that would set if the judge genuinely believed that. Or if he acted on it, right? I mean, that could be, he could have shared his belief, but have the um, intellectual discipline to rule the right way. Um, but, you know, we, we know judges are human and that doesn't always happen. It was concerning to say the least. And I think this highlights, that's one of the, the myths and aspects of rape culture. And I think one of the other big ones that we know about is victim blaming and harmful stereotypes. Do you think that Me Too has managed to fight back against those successfully? And Mike, I'm hearing from you a little bit that the Kavanaugh hearings really might've turned the tides in a different way. So where do you all think we are there? Well, uh, I'm, you know, it depends on the day, right? Every day I wake up and I think, how can I change the rape culture? How can I burn down the patriarchy? Some days I go to sleep feeling like I've made a difference. And, you know, other days I just decide I'm going to wake up tomorrow and try it all again. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I still, I think that, um, how people are coming forward now, um, which in my experience is preliminarily, is, is primarily um, through a anonymous social media post, um, you know, that, that is, that makes that survivor susceptible to these kinds of attacks. Um, so one of the, the biggest ways I think we can all as advocates shift that is educating as much as possible uh, how to how to me too in a safe way um, in a way that doesn't uh, get a defamation uh, case filed you know a counterclaim filed against you um, you know it's just part of our duty now to make sure people are talking about this and coming forward in a way that is safe for them not just legally but also psychologically psychically. Laura, in 2018, you said that you thought this movement represented a tipping point. Do you still feel that way? I do worry that if we stay simply in the social awareness space, that we are not actually ever going to create the lasting change that is truly needed, because it's the legal system that's perpetuated the notion of false rapes by having historical rape law require physical resistance to the utmost, meaning through the entire duration of the attack until culmination of the sexual act, 
of violence against the person. And very few people could meet that standard. And so many cases were tossed out and a lot of people, societal perceptions have become, well, you can't prove rape very, very easily and it's suspect to false charges. No, that was a error in the law. That was ignorance that was codified and created, you know, a rape culture. And so I really encourage people who are invested in Me Too to start thinking about ways that we can reform the legal system specifically, whether that be campus proceedings, the way that police respond to survivors who undertake reports, saying that I really think we need to focus on educating judges, educating courtrooms, and bluntly having more people join the legislature, whether that be at a local level all the way up through the national level, who are ready to reform rape law. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving on the American Law Institute's um, sexual misconduct project, as well as the sexual assault penal code uh, efforts. And I can tell you from sitting there with, you know, dozens of top legal professionals, there is so much rape culture alive and well in those echelons. So we have great law, um, but that doesn't mean we always get great results because um, systemically, it's still very, very hard, especially in the adult-on-adult -adult cases. And um, the, the next layer down from the legislature really is the boots on the ground and the police officers who are um, not ensuring that SART exams happen or that you know DNA gets tested or that are um, interrogating victims and survivors in a way that, that basically silences them. I mean, we really need a complete overhaul um, in that system. And what we see on the civil side is when they come to a civil lawyer, they expect the same sense of justice that they would have gotten from the criminal piece, but the criminal side failed them. Um, so again, it goes back to education and really explaining what the criminal component could have done or did do um, and what uh, the, the civil realm uh, is able to provide, which is limited. Can but, I want to talk about this? Sorry, I just want to say it's the best system out there. And that is how um, we're going to change society and change perception is getting these cases to trial in civil courts and getting verdicts that help uh, women and men and children get the funds to get the therapy they need to try and uh, walk back some of the significant trauma they've experienced. And that brings up a great point because we've been talking all about how Me Too has impacted civil litigation and criminal litigation, but I'd actually like to look at how do you see civil litigation being used to push this forward? And how has civil litigation impacted the Me Too movement so far? I'm happy to jump in again. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we try to do is get creative in within ethical bounds with our um, pleadings, because there's not a lot of law. The body of law hasn't been developed um, especially in these two areas that I was talking about, gender violence and this, this civil code section 51.9, which is essentially sexual harassment outside of the employment context. Well, there aren't a lot of court of appeal decisions. There aren't a lot of Supreme Court decisions that provide guidance. So we have to really 
forge the path, um, get creative. And if a ruling goes the, the, the wrong way, make our record and take these cases up because we need to, you know, it's the same reason why, why survivors come forward a lot of the time. They don't want it to happen to anyone coming up behind them. They want to help the generations behind them. And that's what as advocates, as legal advocates, we should be doing too. We should be building this body of law out to help lawyers who come up behind us and anyone who's experienced sexual violence. My practice is uh, all uh, suits against institutions. So primarily schools that have been deliberately indifferent to sexual harassment. And it's really exciting to see the ways in which um, local organizing and students and families who are uh, care passionately about Me Too uh, and, and ending sexual harassment can really change the ways that a school responds to a lawsuit. I'm not going to pretend that schools are saying, you're right, we did it, you know, here's, you know, here's a million dollars in settlement the day after you filed. But I do think that um, schools' openness to injunctive relief in particular, to making long, uh, to, to making much needed policy changes that will help other students in the future can really be a function of community concern. So it's been exciting to see in some cases where as we are litigating, uh, there, is all, there is also student protest um, to, and, and my hope is that those, you know, those different kinds of pressure can come together to ensure that the school does better going forward, whatever happens in court. So Alex, this is going to be a multifaceted question. First, I'd like to ask you to explain Title IX, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. But then the other question is, how have you seen, because Title IX has been around much longer than Me Too. So how have you seen Me Too, how have you seen how Me Too changes, how Title IX is applied in schools, and how has it changed college culture specifically? The first part of that question is much easier. So yes. to, the, to the, the legal uh, specifics. So Title IX is a education civil rights statute that prohibits sex discrimination in schools among other educational institutions. And as part of that, courts have made clear, schools have to address sexual harassment against students, against staff, against uh, everyone who's, who's covered by the, the statute. And the um, there's sort of well-worn paths to liability that turn on the school's deliberate indifference to reported sexual harassment. Those standards are garbage. They are atextual. They are incredibly hard for survivors to meet. And so there's a lot of creative lawyering going around, going on right now to try to develop some alternatives or legislative efforts to change those standards. Uh, but that's the that's the basic lay of the land. And it's hard for me in some ways to talk about the relationship between Me Too and student organizing because uh, obviously the work of feminist activism get to get institutions to address sexual harassment is very long. In terms of recent history, we saw this wave of student activism that Laura and I were lucky enough to be a part of in uh, sort of 
I'd say roughly from over the Obama years, a little bit before uh, that, that was a precursor to, to this most recent wave of Me Too in, in some ways. And I don't want to take too much credit there. I don't want to suggest that that organizing is the only reason why the 2017 version of Me Too happened as it did. But I do think that it served to engage a lot of young people, especially a lot of young women who were politicized in their late teens, early 20s, by their experiences with sexual assault on college campuses, getting involved in a movement, and then seeing how those same issues played out throughout society, not just in schools. And so I see it feeding in that direction. The other way around, one thing that I think has been helpful about the larger Me Too framing for campuses is there has often been a lot of focus on sexual assault specifically at college on college campuses, which is hugely important, but there's also obviously a lot of other forms of gender violence and sexual harassment to which students and others are subject. And one of the things that I think is really powerful about the Me Too framing is that it connects various different kinds of harms that are similar uh, in, in cause and in effect on survivors' ability to move through the world, to feel like equal citizens, even if all of those forms of harassment don't take the exact same form. Switching topics completely, do you all feel that the gains made from this movement are felt equally across socioeconomic, racial, and other identity lines? Definitely not. No. I would concur that it has not, but it is seeping into places that I think have been strongholds which isn't everything, but it is, uh, it is significant. Uh, just yesterday, I was in Abington, Virginia, and the judge was ruling on my client being charged with a false rape report. And in his ruling, which acquitted her because there was literally no proof that the sexual assault didn't happen. And this was kind of the police trying to cover their own because it was a police-related accusation. He went on to talk about how you know, he's been trained in domestic violence. He's been trained and seen me too. And he never realized all the prevalence of gender violence, the dynamics of gender violence. And it would never have logically occurred to him all these dynamics and the way that gender violence is uh, perpetrated and he required training. And so he is now aware that he doesn't know everything. He can't just use common sense. He has to listen to experts about why a true rape victim would recant under pressure from law enforcement. So that shocked me to my core to see such an effect because there really are pockets in this country where you wouldn't expect to hear those things. And I was in such a pocket and I heard it. So me too, it, it is not a solution. It is not everything in and of itself, but it has given the media, I think a uniform way to start talking and bringing attention even to local communities about this issue. And for a variety of survivors, kind of as Alexandra said, of different you know, backgrounds to have a uniform language. So there has been some unity and power and it is not equally applied, but it is making changes in tough areas. One of the problems when you have uh, an individual defendant, so there is no institution or entity, is that there is there are limited funds to compensate the survivor. And so a lot of times those cases don't get pursued 
Um, so there is a um, socioeconomic impact that also carries over into, you know, all kinds of other areas, but that's just the dynamic of civil litigation um, when you don't have an institution or entity as a defendant. Well, that is all the time for questions we have, but before we finish, the point of this podcast is to really focus on finding justice outside of the criminal justice system. So I'm going to ask each of our presenters to share with us a case and a client that they knew who were able to find justice because of the Me Too movement outside of the criminal justice system. So we will start with Micah. Could you tell us about a case? I represented a woman who was sexually assaulted by a medical provider in the examination room. He locked the door um, and uh, sexually assaulted her. And uh, she was not monolingual, but Spanish was her primary language. Um, and when the assault finished, she ran out um, and, and ran home. And it took one of her relatives uh, to encourage her to go to the police. Um, and because it was a medical provider who had clout, uh, was sophisticated, was from a different socioeconomic background, and then here is she there for, you know, just a routine medical visit, um, the police took no action. Um, but we had enough evidence to file a claim civilly. And what we found out through discovery, and I credit the Me Too movement for this, is that there were other women who came forward and reported different levels of abuse, um, but they kind of got documented, not really, but there was enough for us to glean to find these other women and speak with them. And so we were able to prove notice, which is something uh, that we always, you know, focus our discovery on and our attention on and foreseeability. Um, and while the case was pending there, we were also able to get some news uh, publicity and attention on the claims. And we made sure that the story ran on a Spanish language um, channel as well as an English speaking channel. And we got additional phone calls through that. And really what it revealed to me was um, after the Me Too movement at the end of, you know, in 2017, women were more confident and were able to at least say, this happened to me. None of them took any steps to contact the police or, or file any actions, but it just made, um, they were, they were paving the way and coming forward and telling their difficult stories. And it really ended up saving someone and helping another woman uh, achieve justice. That's awesome and very powerful. Alex? I want to talk a little bit about an appeal um, where we, we had a recent victory. So public justice, uh, co-counsels a case with Korea and Puth and the AIDS law firm representing a student who was sexually assaulted by a classmate when she on a band trip when she was a junior in high school. 
And before, before I joined the case, um, they had a really frustrating trial where the jury believed that our client had been sexually assaulted, um, but was very confused about the knowledge standard. They thought that a school only had actual knowledge of harassment if, they, if the school concluded that the harassment occurred, uh, which is not what the law has ever said. And so returned a verdict saying that our client had been sexually assaulted, that it had interfered with her education, but that the school hadn't, hadn't, hadn't known, and so no liability. And I'll say the first half of that verdict, I actually take to be an incredible uh, sign of progress uh, in part thanks to Me Too, because this was what we would all recognize as a sexual assault, but I don't know I would have trusted that 12 members of the public would because it was an assault where she froze. And so she didn't, Laura was talking earlier about historical requirements that victims resist to the utmost. And by her own testimony, she tried to push this guy off of her, when he kept coming, she froze. But a jury, with the help of an expert witness, uh, with the help of our client's own really powerful testimony about her experience, understood that as a sexual assault. We then went up into appeal. This is when I joined the case um, and had uh, argued in the Fourth Circuit. And the school's main argument was that they couldn't have had knowledge because no one at the school recognized that our client's report was a report of sexual assault, which I will say is just BS. Her mom used the word sexual assault. I do not know how much clearer you need to be. But you know what they were saying was, well, when a young person comes and says that she froze, that she doesn't think that there was consent, that she was shocked and scared, maybe people don't recognize that as a sexual assault. Maybe they think that that's consensual sex. And what Judge Wynn, uh, the, the judge who ended up writing the opinion in this case or trial said during the argument was, what that argument, what if the school was right, what that would do is constantly tie us to an earlier era where people could never achieve victory through the courts if institutions don't train their own people to overcome biases, to overcome stereotypes, to recognize sexual abuse for what it is. And so the law sometimes is going to have to be a step ahead of where we are culturally to uh, incentivize that kind of training and progress. And so to me, seeing the case at these two levels was trial was uh, jury having, you know, impressing me with how, with their recognition of what sexual assault looks like. And then appeal was fun to see this judge sort of slapping down the idea that we need to be indebted to earlier misunderstandings of sexual abuse. So um, we, we won that appeal, which is very exciting. And so now our client will have a chance at a new trial. I love that. Laura? So I have a case that was recently settled. The plaintiff went throughout the litigation as Jill Rowe. She has since become public with her actual name, which is Nikki Wumwell. And I am in awe of what she has accomplished, kind of building off the Me Too movement outside of litigation. So the litigation was challenging. What happened to her happened when she was about 14 years old at a high school where we have other claims of sexual assault repeatedly occurring and adults repeatedly ignoring it or misclassifying it or minimizing it or just discouraging victims even when they said they believed that an abuse had occurred. And so she was coming from this culture of silence and what happened to her was so young and it 
literally had destroyed her life. She had dropped out of school um, and was requiring significant medical and mental health care uh, to keep going. And, and the litigation was challenging on her. There is no two ways about it. And we, in thinking about kind of next steps, when she was able to think about an earlier settlement, she didn't feel yet that full justice had been achieved. And she went public and used her name and said, you know what, I'm not going to be Jill Rowe. I want you to know who I am. This is my name. And I want others to know that you silenced me, that you made this so challenging that I took an earlier settlement, but, but it's not over. And from her courage, we now have, uh, I believe, six total survivors that have come forward saying the same thing happened to them at the same high school with the same officials. The school board would re refused, absolutely refused to acknowledge that this was happening despite media story and protest and media story and protest. And they didn't give up and they didn't back down and they got into the board and they kept arguing. And over this entire summer, three months now, they have not only gotten the board to admit that things weren't handled properly um, to get a Title IX task force, but they actually got the principal suspended, um, which, you know, litigation, you can't always get someone fired for doing a bad job. Sometimes it's a natural consequence of successful litigation. But sometimes schools do not want to let go of individuals who have created the hostile culture and fostered it. And so these women uh, that were inspired by Nikki coming forward have all banded together and still aren't backing down. Uh, there's a question of whether the principal's contract will even be renewed or if he will be replaced. And there's even more and more questions coming out about the school resource officer and the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. And did they hide these reports? Did they fail them? Will they be reinvestigated? And to me, it's such a me too story because sometimes our legal systems can only go so far or sometimes the clients within the legal system can only make it so far because it is such a taxing process. And that doesn't mean you can't get justice through other means. And I think Me Too is a piece of longstanding activism that will keep moving into the future because of courageous survivors like Nikki and all the others that have come forward. So that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Alex, Micah, and Laura for joining us. We will put information and their websites into the show notes for this page. So please make sure to check them out. And thank you for listening to another episode of Parallel Justice. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams, and produced by Deidre Watford. 